Hello and welcome to Dangerous Exponents, a COVID-19 podcast. My name is Jeff Sackman and with me is my co-host, Carl Bialik. Hi there, Carl. Hi, Jeff. Carl and I are doing our 13th episode here of Dangerous Exponents. We've covered a variety of aspects of, uh, of, of the science and the public health policy pertaining to the pandemic. And our usual caveat is that we are not epidemiologists. We are not physicians. You should not uh, act medically on our advice, but we hope we bring our differing backgrounds in data journalism and related sort of activities uh, to shed some light on some of these interesting issues related to the pandemic. And today, what we want to talk about is hygiene theater and COVID absolutism. And one of the biggest issues related to all of that is the the public policies and the actual science pertaining to indoor risk and outdoor risk of uh, spreading the virus. And it seems like virtually all of the policy decisions, maybe not all of the coverage, but a lot of the coverage in the media as well, has, ha- has overstated the risk of spreading the virus or catching the virus outdoors and understated the relative risk of catching the virus indoors. So Carl, let's start with that. Do you, do you think that's fair that, that, that we, should be, we, we should be accepting more the fact that the risk of catching or spreading COVID is very low outdoors and maybe higher than we acknowledge indoors? Generally, yes, absolutely. I think there's been almost no documented outdoor transmission outside, maybe close, sustained conversation with someone else, uh, especially not wearing a mask. I think maybe it's harder to demonstrate transmission outdoors. One of the one of the things that makes this whole conversation slightly trickier is that we're only really talking about cases we can confirm, and there are certain kinds of activities that are easier to trace uh, transmission to, and, and maybe being outside with a whole lot of people, many of whom you don't know, is not is not one where it's easy. But Generally speaking, with almost a year of evidence, it, it looks like outdoor transmission is much rarer. Yeah, we talked about this several episodes ago when we dug into the issue of super spreaders, that th- there is a fairly good data set of super spreader events, and none of them were entirely outdoors. There were some that were sort of hybrid indoor-outdoor events, so it's it's possible that a little bit of transmission is happening outdoors, but the vast majority is indoors. And a lot of outdoor stuff is either limited or restricted or forbidden entirely to the extent that UC Berkeley in California is is forbidding outdoor walks. Um, it, there's a number of, of these sort of extreme examples, and we'll get into the absolutist mindset a little later on. But if... If it's fairly well accepted in the scientific community that the the risk of outdoor activities is low, what what are what of these things that are currently restricted shouldn't be like what what should we be opening up to more of outdoors? There are a lot of places where there are almost no outdoor restrictions, and I think that's that's good. Um, I in the places where there are some, like you mentioned, Berkeley and, and California generally had some restrictions on, on outdoor dining recently. I, I think there's there's just a lot of uh, potential here to effectively replace the temptation for indoor gatherings that no one's going to know about and, and can't realistically restrict by, by freeing up the restrictions on outdoor activities. I think the UK also at, at times has maybe had restrictions on outdoor 
physical activity with with one other person, like going for a walk with a friend from from a different household. And if you restrict that, the temptation to get together with that person indoors just rises immensely. So uh, I I don't know if at the height of the outbreaks about a month ago in January, it, it made sense for all outdoor activities to be pretty much permitted. But as a kind of safety valve, a release against uh, all the indoor restrictions that seem more essential, I think it, it makes sense to to free up just about everything outdoors. Now, if you if you do end up as a result of that having people pretty crowded together outdoors, having maybe um, stricter masking rules, especially in in places where people are going to be near each other for a long time, makes sense to me. Uh, and you know that may turn some people off. It may be hard to enforce, but if it generally means we can do more together outdoors, it seems worth it. So you think it would be reasonable to to allow, let's say, outdoor concerts or outdoor sporting events if, if people were wearing masks? I think it depends on the capacity. Um, I, I'm still unclear on if we really know what, what makes sense. I, I, I do know that there's a lot of fear that there were some soccer matches in, in Italy early on that turned out to be super spreader events, and, and those were in outdoor stadiums, from what I understand, but still might have indoor spaces like concourses and shops. And um, it, it's kind of unclear to me what what you could get away with capacity-wise, but it seems like, especially in places where um, the case count is is under control, that you, you might be able to return these event return crowds to these events, uh, but probably not at a hundred percent capacity. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting set of trade offs that it, it might it, it might be the case that you can have a lot of people in a stadium or in a park watching a concert or something without much risk of spreading the virus. But those people all have to get there somewhere. So if we're talking about New York City, there are, many of them are getting there on the subway, which is indoors in that sense. And in the case of the super spreader events at football matches in, in Northern Italy early in the pandemic, one of the concerns was uh, the virus spreading at bars after the game. So you wonder what the what the capacity limits are really aimed to limit. Like maybe the concern so much isn't having a thousand people in a stadium, it's having a thousand people outside the stadium beforehand, outside the stadium afterwards, moving in the same directions at those times that give rise to other activities that are themselves riskier. And I mean, I'm guessing we don't have a lot of data on that at this point because those sorts of activities, the outdoor or the indoor parts of it have been restricted for so long. So we we don't really know what, what happens or how much of that can be controlled. Um, but the other, the other thing I, that I sort of class in the same category with, with outdoor risk is, is surface risk. And one thing we heard a lot about early in the pandemic was you know, we should wash our hands frequently, which we should be doing anyway. But there was a concern that there was a lot of risk of transmitting the virus via surfaces. I remember hearing at one point that, uh, that it, the virus could survive on packages. So if you get a package in the mail, you should let it sit for a couple days or something. And that science has largely been debunked. It seems like those studies were using uh, unrealistically uh, large concentrations of the virus or they were being maintained in unrealistic conditions. So 
it doesn't seem to be much of a factor. There's a lot of cleaning of surfaces being done that doesn't really have much impact on spreading the virus. Uh, knowing what we know now about surfaces, does that imply any policy changes or behavior changes that we can make? There's been just a lot of spending of time and, and money on performing the disinfecting of surfaces. And it's something so visible. It's something we can all connect to because even pre-COVID, this was a way to keep surfaces in, in kitchens and bathrooms and, and gyms and many other places safe. And, you know, it's something that you expect to see. And I, I emphasize see. It's a, it's a visual thing and also smell potentially, depending on what kind of disinfectants. You want to see it in healthcare settings and settings where people are sweating and in settings where there might be uh, food contamination and, and kitchens. So I think it's, it's something that we find comforting generally uh, in cases where we might have some kind of fear of, of infection or sickness. But um, as a result, it it takes away from potentially other measures. We only have so many resources for, for keeping ourselves safe, especially in smaller businesses and organizations that just don't have very big budgets generally. So if they could be spending that money instead on ventilation, which is just at the other end of the spectrum in terms of performance and visibility and, and, and other senses, uh, they might actually be protecting people much more. And I, I, I think that it's, it's really sh disappointing and sad and telling that even at this stage with, with so many months of evidence that this is just not worth it, uh, we're still doing this kind of cleaning and advertising it and using it as a as a frame of reference for whether something is safe. Yeah, it, it really is jarring because doing the research on, on for this episode, people are talking about this stuff now. I mean, you can, you can read something in the New York Times from, from this week or, or last month touching on these issues. But some of the articles that discuss the, the low risk of outdoor gathering, the low risk of transmission via surfaces, I mean, they're from last May. They're, they're citing uh, research papers that at least were pre-printed in, in April last year. So very early in the pandemic, we knew this stuff. We're almost a year later, and still the hygiene theater is, is going strong. And one of, the, one of the biggest examples is the New York City subway. Like, you're, you've talked about the trade-offs in different ways of keeping us safe. So... So cleaning surfaces is spending money and, and person hours on that could be spent elsewhere to keep us safe, but they could, could be spent elsewhere for other things as well. And like if the New York City subway is closing overnight, if they're spending a lot of money and resources on on cl on cleaning, then I, I think there's a few other things the New York City subway could do. I mean, it, it, do you think it's... It, it doesn't seem like it'd be a popular thing to discuss making these trade-offs between things that could at least in theory be keeping us safe and things that would just make our lives better. But I mean, do you think that's tenable at all to say, you know what, we're, we're willing to sacrifice this last 10th of a percent of surface hygiene in exchange for getting New York City subway service back to 100% because that's a good thing. I mean, is that, is that politically even feasible right now? 
based on what we know about public opinion, it, it re- one of the reasons this hygiene theater persists is that people do seem to care about it. And, and I've just found anecdotally that people continue to cite cleaning surfaces, including in their own homes, as, as one of the key ways that they're making sure to stay safe, so to speak. So I I don't know. I think one of the problems we see now, but have also seen with past scares of, of various kinds, is that once you introduce a measure, no matter how ill-supported, it's really hard to remove it, even if the support gets even weaker, the scientific support, not the public support, uh, because people come to expect it and, and fear what it means if it's taken away, even if it turns out it wasn't really protecting them much in the first place. And, you know, there's there's all sorts of mechanisms to make public officials risk averse about changing these kinds of measures. So, yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure. I, I think the places that never went never adopted such extreme measures are in a better place right now, so to speak, but they, uh, the ones that have, uh, seem to find it really difficult to, to move on. And yeah, I think there, you're right that we should be hearing more about trade-offs, not just between COVID safety measures, but between measures period. And, um, we, we haven't seemed to find the right words to, to pull that off. Yeah, and that's going to become particularly important for schools. I mean, fortunately, there's lots of stakeholders in schools, some of whom are very loud and some of whom are rightfully prioritizing education over the, the last tenth of a percent of safety. But I mean, some school districts are talking about, I'm not sure whether any have yet enacted uh, patterns in which they, they closed for one day for deep cleaning. So it's kind of the, the school building equivalent of the New York City subway, which is ridiculous. I mean, wiping down surfaces throughout the day is not unreasonable, but closing for a day of deep cleaning that could have been given to actual in-person education is pretty outrageous. And like like I say, the one advantage to that might be that it's so outrageous and that it hits people where they live and that they want their kids to go to school and their kids will benefit from the education. Um, it, it's something that might keep the discussion going in a way that losing late night hours of New York City subway service would not. So there's a little potential. But the flip side of one of the things we're talking about, we've been focusing on some of the ways in which uh, the policies have overreacted to perceived risk. There's a flip side to that in that indoor risk might be similarly understated. I mean, given that, as we're saying, virtually all virus transmission is happening indoors. It's not happening via surfaces, but it's happening via people exchanging droplets by talking or yelling or singing or whatever. Given some of the ways in which it seems like we could open up safely outdoors, are there ways in which we should still have stronger restrictions indoors? Clearly, we should keep schools closed. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's it's a good question. I I think, uh, you know, We've talked a bit about New York, and, and New York has been an interesting place to look at because of different policies that seem to contradict each other. And New York has reopened indoor dining, even while it remains one of the states in the country with the worst outbreaks and an outbreak in terms of case counts that's worse than, than the level in the spring, which probably had suppressed case counts. But it it seems like the best idea we've come up with for, you know, protecting people's jobs is is making trade-offs with services that are a lot less essential than schools. 
And um, while we have tried other things, including outdoor dining, uh, there there are certain limits on on doing that in a in a way that's truly outdoors, but also warm enough in in the cold months. So yeah, I, I think there there are some uh, some things that that could be even more restricted indoors. I, from what I've heard about the way some offices have reopened, uh, they don't seem to be operating that differently than they did before, including for businesses that don't really seem like they need to happen in person. Um, I think the sort of capacity restrictions that could really help with, with certain kinds of shopping businesses aren't really being enforced. So there's there's lots of kind of trade-offs to so-called keep the economy going uh, that are happening indoors and, and potentially in ways where the trade-off isn't a very good one. Yeah, that's it's such a tricky thing to discuss and partly because... I- at least in in the U.S. and I think a lot of Europe, the goal of all of these measures isn't very clear. I mean, if if you look at how Australia is handling the pandemic, the goal for a long time has basically been to drive the case count to zero or get as 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 close to zero as humanly possible. And when that is the goal, the measures you need to take to get there are very clear. And yes, they'll be very harsh at least for a short term, but they're clear. And in, in the U.S., um, there's this idea that it, it, it can be controlled or kept to a manageable level in exchange for these trade-offs, but it's not really clear what the target is. And that's the, I understand it's extremely difficult to, to put a number on these things, and even if you could put a number on them to decide what the target should be, but people have worked out what some of these trade-offs are. So for instance, I think it was a a New York Times article last month or in December that reported on a model that showed that if you, I think if you reduce the capacity of a retail store by by 50%, you can retain 80% of the business or something like that. Uh, Partly because most of the time it's not full. Like you don't need capacity restrictions at slow periods of the day. And also because if there are capacity restrictions, people will go at slower times. I mean, they'll, they'll rearrange their, their schedules to get them in the door rather than waiting outside in line. And that's an example of a trade-off that yes, it's just a, it's just a model. So we don't know for sure that's how it works out. But if, if we did have a goal of say, I mean, reducing exposure by 80%, we could say, okay, businesses need to have, this sort of capacity uh, restriction in place. But it's not really clear how to set those targets or communicate them, even if, even if people somehow could agree on what they were. And, and I wonder, this is, this is one of the biggest problems with public health messaging, it's one of the biggest problems with even just individuals figuring out how to live their lives with all these conflicting bits of advice and, and regulations. In, we're living in this middle ground where we're not reducing risk to zero. We're trying to decide what that level of acceptable level of risk is. One of the ways we do that is going absolute in some areas. So for instance, you, as you point out, Carl, it's, it's very comforting to, you know, clean a surface to go on a subway, you know, has been quote unquote deep cleaned overnight. And some of these things feel hundred percent safe, but most of the time we're living in this like 20% world or 30% world. And how, how can you make decisions? I mean, is, is, is there, if you were to give someone tips on like 
how to balance these different considerations when we know that zero percent risk is 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 not an option like what do you tell them what are the trade-offs that need to be made your point about australia and it being clear there is 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 such an important one and when we also don't really always have a coherent story about how various measures lead to um, lead to various changes in in outbreaks it's it's just a harder it's a harder sell so we we had travel suggestions around Thanksgiving and Christmas in the US and I think in, in many other places and there isn't really clear evidence that supposedly the the great amount of travel that happened despite those advisories really blew up the outbreak or the the big decline that we've seen worldwide in case counts in the last month isn't clearly tied to some kind of global measure that we took maybe there's some more intrinsic biological consideration to do with the virus's sustainability right now but that's a harder sell too like no matter what we do this is going to come down in these months and go up in these months so i i don't I don't really know how we how we sell these things. Um, I think schools is is a really good example that you brought up because there is such a strong base of people calling for the necessity of schools for all the many essential services they provide. Uh, and outside of schools, I, I don't know what else is is quite as clear. I mean, even even with let's say grocery stores and pharmacies, if you lower the capacity, like you said, you can push people toward delivery, which is a decent option for a long time if that if that will help drive down case counts. But can I can I really sell you on the idea that if if your pharmacy suddenly becomes less convenient, that this is going to make you safer, your community safer and the numbers in your city, state and country lower? It's just it's just a harder connection to drive. And I think people have had enough examples that they've seen in that direction and also in the other direction of people they know who say, I got COVID and I have no idea how I got it. I can't tell you like what what I did that could have possibly led to infection. I, I think these are all confu- confusing things for decision makers all the way up to the government level. So one thing we haven't discussed before on this show is, is the issue of talking. Um, we did discuss this in, in one of our earlier episodes about the, the fact that some people might be super spreaders because they they, they emit certain particles in greater numbers or, or something like that. Uh, and we know that some super spreader events have occurred because of loud talking or singing. And this was known, again, very early on in the pandemic. I remember seeing that Tokyo Disneyland put up signs telling people not to, to scream on the roller coasters. And our last episode was... I think maybe two weeks ago was about masks. And one of the things about masks is they are so low cost, both in the sense that they're in, in dollar terms, they're, they're very low cost. And in, in terms of the, the cost to a lifestyle, putting a mask on is nothing compared to having stores and schools and other activities closed. Uh, and there does seem to be a, a benefit to talking less, to talking more quietly and thus exchanging fewer droplets indoors. And that seems to be very low cost as well, maybe even lower cost than masks because you can still have a conversation. You just have it at a lower volume. But unlike masks, I've heard very little about this over the last year. Like one of the articles that we looked at suggested 
sort of enforcing library rules that just an expectation that if you're indoors you speak at a lower volume period uh, you don't take your mask off and shout on your your mobile phone and when you're at the grocery store um, that would be a norm that would be extremely valuable in stopping transmission it seems like this is a giant missed opportunity in terms of public health guidance a do you agree B, can you think of why this is not being played up more as a way of slowing down transmission? I, I don't know why, but I, I agree that it's a real missed opportunity and I find it fascinating. And I think the, the example being set at some of the highest levels of, of power is a terrible one where, where people conspicuously take off their mask when they're about to, to speak on television, even if they're in the Senate and surrounded by masked colleagues, that, that it's just what you do if you want to be heard. And that it's just not tenable. And I've even seen in private conversations, people taking off their masks so that they can lean in and talk to each other and be heard. <laughs> and you can be heard in a mask. It's possible. It's it's not great. It's really not great. And it, it seems like it's, it's one of many essential functions that our noses and mouths perform that are somewhat disabled by by wearing a mask it's certainly not ideal but it's definitely possible i think we've all had conversations successfully with masks on um you know sometimes i have the very sad and cynical thought that people put out messages early on with like lists of three things to do and sometimes that meant printing posters and hanging them up, including in, in parks and businesses. And those just became, that became the list. And anything that didn't make that cut was just not going to be included. And at least in, in my part of the world, it seems like that list is um, wear a mask, maintain social distance, wash your hands. And it's pretty good. Those are three good ones to have chosen early on. I'm, I'm glad that I generally don't see cleaning surfaces except more as, as like an advertisement. For businesses than as a um, recommendation for individuals but you know other things that could turn out to be just as important are not are not on that list including stay quiet and uh, stay outdoors and I think um, you know if you had to draw up a new one now maybe you would you would focus on those maybe you would clarify what you mean by social distance because I think that's been a pretty terribly used phrase in a lot of context, but yeah, just my, my suspicion is that if it didn't, if it wasn't in the original list, it's really hard to introduce now. Yeah, and it, one one thing that always frustrates me is is the extent to which people take things literally, and I know that's really vague, and and it needs to be. But one of the things that was established early on was this notion of six feet in fifteen minutes for a close contact, and. The six feet was basically invented out of thin air. It was based on one study and altered by another study, neither of which were were COVID related at all. So it's not bad advice, but the idea that six feet is is some magical number is it's just wrong. And fifteen minutes is also basically invented out of whole cloth. And thus, a lot of people have been told that you'll keep yourself safe if you limit interactions to less than 15 minutes from more than six feet away, which we know conclusively is 
is just it's not a way to keep yourself safe. I mean, there's examples of, of contact tracing done where two people sitting at opposite ends of a restaurant far more than six feet away, one managed to infect the other. It seems equally obvious, even without any real understanding of, of the science involved, that there's no difference between, you know, 10 minutes and 15 minutes. Sure, 15 minutes is worse, but I mean, you can do a lot of biological damage in, in 10 minutes. And there was an article in the Wall Street Journal recently about the lessons learned from all of the data gathered in the NFL, American football's bubble. And one of the one of the headline findings was you can you can spread the virus in less than 15 minutes. And it's like, well, duh, of course you can. And it never would have occurred to me when hearing this advice of six feet in 15 minutes that that meant that 14 minutes was okay, or even that 10 minutes was okay. It's just a guide. I mean, it's obviously just a guideline, but it seems like a lot of people don't understand it that way. And I mean, again, I, I've got two questions then for you, Carl. A, do you think that's that's right, that people are taking it so much more literally? And, and on top of that, like, how do you... How do you get people to understand the concept beyond the the, the literal numbers that are, are are meant only as a guideline? I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of people are taking it literally. And I, I think part of the problem is that so many things people enjoyed and took for granted were being taken away at the same time with so much uncertainty that people were understandably looking for what they could still do. And public health officials, conscious of that, were trying to give them permission to do certain things. And it it all got garbled and messy. I mean, six feet itself is is arbitrary. 15 minutes, as you pointed out, is maybe not arbitrary, but all of these things are continuums. And I think we'd really need people to see this on a continuum of risk and is it is it worth it sometimes to to spend a longer period in in that close proximity to someone maybe it is for certain personal or professional reasons but they ought to at least know what risk they're taking on and not think that risk is zero as long as they they stay just on the right side of these somewhat arbitrary thresholds uh but i think that's not really how we we teach things i mean i i think coming back to schools we need better education about risk and probability and and trade-offs from the start and we're still just desperately trying to get schools open again we're not remaking curricula but i would like to see um some push to to just have a better shot at, at getting this into um some of the earliest concepts that we're teaching around math and and science and and economics um with, with students because it seems like a really hard thing to learn or unlearn later on. Yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, and, and that ties into all forms of this absolutism, whether it's, I mean, I'm not sure whether, whether what we're just discussing now is what's normally termed as COVID absolutism. The idea that, that, you know, 5.5 feet and, and 16 minutes is unsafe and 6.5 feet and 14 minutes is, I, I might have just got those mixed up, but you know what I mean. That the, these rules are are hard coded, um, but in in general, people seem to understand things this way. There there's sort of three settings: either either something is safe, something is unsafe, or we don't know. And there there's no ten percent or thirty percent or seventy percent or ninety percent. There's just 
zero, fifty, and one hundred. And it, I, I always try to try to frame a question this way when we're discussing these things that we sort of agree are wrong. Like we 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 agree that absolutism absolutism is a bad thing. I mean, it's basically baked in the name. I don't think you're you're going to find very many cases where someone says being an absolutist in this area of life is good for everyone. But given that people understand things generally in such a binary way, are, is is absolutism kind of the only alternative? I mean, is, is it, I guess I, I kind of brought this up earlier asking if it was, if it was tenable to talk about trading off some of the, say, surface cleaning for, for other priorities. But let's think about another example. Like the, there are times where masks are a lot more valuable than others. And yes, mask wearing is, is low cost and all of that. But I mean, being outside by yourself, wearing a mask is, I mean, it doesn't really apply at that time. I mean, it's, it looks ridiculous sometimes when, you know, we're, we're both watching tennis these days and in empty stadiums in Australia, you have coaches sitting in sections by themselves wearing a mask. And I mean, there's some, there's some messaging value in that. But if you're, if you're sitting several meters away from any other person outdoors, I mean, wearing a mask seems superfluous. So is this a case where being absolutist just makes more sense saying, you know, wear a mask all the time, period, because it's, it, it wouldn't work to try to convey um, a, a subtler, less absolute message. Yeah. I, this is where I think there, there are two distinct philosophies that you were describing. Absolutism is just take every possible measure all the time, which, which might mean in the case of watching tennis, don't even go. Forget about wearing a mask. That, that might be the absolutist stance. And the other stance of like, um, if you're sufficiently far apart from other people outside, don't wear a mask. If you're at least six feet for under 15 minutes, you're good. That, that seems to be more, more like a rule based, like trusting that if we can, if we can just follow rules and, and look the other way about how these rules were arrived at and how, how confident we are in them, that we'll be, that we'll be totally safe. It's, it's like you think you're being a COVID absolutist because you trust the rule based approach. Absolutely. Um, I, I think w what's problematic is like, yeah, if you're completely alone in a stadium, don't wear a mask. But how do you turn that into something that you can trust everyone else with? Is it sustainable to say everyone will follow that rule and will they follow it well? Um, and do they all agree on what on what the rule is? I, I've found that it seems like some people think as long as they're outside of six feet from other people, they don't need to wear a mask outside. But they're in a place where other people may come within six feet of them all the time. And those other people and them don't really have control over that. So maybe the rule is it's okay because it's only for, you know, a few seconds and that kind of contact is fine. And by the way, all, I'm not belittling all of these. These all seem reasonable. I just haven't seen anyone articulate exactly what is meant. So the official guidance in parks near me is, you don't need to wear a mask if you're not going to be within six feet of other people. But it doesn't say what that means. Does it mean period? Because if it means period, then you can't really ever be confident that you will not be six feet within other people. Uh, does it mean put it on as soon as you see you're about to be within six feet? Anyway, I, I just think 
the rule the rules based approach is really hard because it's really hard to to make these rules clear and consistent uh, and and for people to understand what you mean by them when they're in introducing what are still fairly novel concepts to our societies. Yeah, it is it, it, it is tricky and the answers you arrive at depend a lot on how much faith you have in your fellow citizens and I mean, we all know many people who we would have a lot of trust in to, to follow these rules. And we also know or know of a lot of people who we have no reason to trust to, to follow these rules. And I mean, one one solution to the problem you're discussing is is rather than trying to set the rules, make sure you're explaining the rationale. And that doesn't have to be complicated. I mean, just... Obviously, wearing a mask is safer than not wearing a mask. Talking more quietly is safer than yelling. And we're not all going to agree what our risk thresholds are or what we should be doing in certain situations if someone is approaching us and we don't have our mask on right at that moment. Um, but I think as long as everyone understands what things are good and bad, I mean, a simple thing such as that, and also some sense of, of what the higher risk activities or, or environments are. Uh, then I mean, that would, that would get us a long way. I mean, it would, it would, it would require a very different sort of public health messaging. I mean, that, that's, and, and I think that's one of the temptations of absolutism is, I mean, I, I'm not sure, I'm not sure there is a good way to do public health messaging without sort of long daily briefings or weekly briefings uh, that you trust people to watch and understand. I mean, that's, I think I just mentioned this on an earlier episode that it, we now know that, that Sweden has failed in a lot of ways. But one of the things that appealed to me about Sweden's approach early on is the, the people in charge of the health system who were, uh, who were controlling a lot of the response to the pandemic. They were in the media a lot from very early in the process, and they openly acknowledged what they did and didn't know. Uh, so they were having these sorts of conversations with the population. And I wouldn't be surprised if Swedish people in March were among the best educated about these trade-offs that we're talking about. I mean, it, it turns out there were a lot of other things done wrong at the same time that sort of negates any of these advantages, but that's, that's the model. I just don't know whether it's applicable at all in other places around the world. Certainly with the political climate in the U.S. over the last 12 months, uh, it just wouldn't fly. There, there, there's no way. I mean, he, there, there's no reason to trust that, uh, that state-level systems would all, or even a majority of them, would have behaved in responsible ways that trusted their citizens or that their citizens uh, could largely be trusted to make these trade-offs. Uh, but, okay. Last question. I've been rambling on about that for too long, but Andrew Cuomo, or maybe not Andrew Cuomo personally, uh, uh, there's there's a quote that I recently came across that that said some publication from New York State said that New York State was following the science more than anywhere else, or or something like that, and it's. Um, it's something that a lot of governments, a lot of officials like to claim that what they're doing is because they're following the science. That's their rationale rather than explaining why, why certain things are more or less dangerous. They just say, do this because it is what the science says. We are responsible because we are following the advice of science. And 
science, of course, is not 100% clear cut on all these things. I mean, people revise their, their, their discoveries. We debunk some discoveries. Uh, science changes and it is never 100% clear. You know, how would you in, envision like a government actually following the science? How, what would that look like? Yeah, it's such an absurd statement because, of course, there are there are other considerations, or they don't mean they are implying that they mean epidemiology or or medicine or biology, but they mean if they mean science, they mean all the sciences, including economics and including behavior and psychology. And if if they were strictly following the science in New York, we wouldn't have had indoor dining at all. It's it, that's pretty clear cut, but. If you're also weighing the impact to that industry and and the lack of perceived alternatives to protect them and the impact on people wanting to eat in restaurants, then then those are different sciences than they're implying. And even so, it's still a policy decision. It's still a government decision how to weigh those. I think what it really might look like while still being practical and not being that sort of endless briefing that you described if you really tried to incorporate all what we know and, and don't know. I think it might look something like what the New York Times has done at least once during the pandemic where they've surveyed a whole lot of epidemiologists about how they're living their lives. And maybe a more direct way to do it would be to say, you know, rank these activities in terms of which is, if, if people are only going to follow one recommendation, put that one at the top. If they're only going to follow two rank it that way. And that way, you know, people who do want to be closer to absolutist can go all the way down the list and all the way at the bottom might be disinfect surfaces. But at right at the top, it would be, you know, reduce your total time indoors with the total number of other people or phrase it better. Um, and, and, and that it would, it would just clearly rank their current opinion based on what they know and don't know of what is the most important thing for people to to do if they want to protect themselves and the people around them more. I think that would be a much more realistic way to sum all this up than than what we've got now in supposedly science-driven administrations. Yeah, and just to clarify what I said before, the actual quote it comes from a, um, I think it was from a press release, but it, it said New York uses, quote, more science than any state in the nation. Just wanted to get that on the record. and. I, I do like that idea of one of the, one of the more useful heuristics that I I like to use when deciding who to trust or who to listen to is is look for people who actually have something at stake or people who have skin in the game, and I mean it, it's tough in the, in the time of a pan- pandemic because I mean we all have skin in the game we all could contract the virus we all could ha- we have some risk of, of getting very sick from it. Uh, and that includes epidemiologists. So, so yeah, if you want to be as smart as an epidemiologist in terms of your reaction, you would do what they do. And I, I note that that article you referred to from December, it, it, here's a few examples that I jotted down. One, 12% of the epidemiologists surveyed ate indoors at a restaurant. I think it was in the last month or something. 9% exercised at a gym. 7% worked in a shared office. 4% sent children on indoor play dates. So, I mean, th- those are all at the riskier, less common end of the spectrum. But I thought it was interesting and worth worth considering the implications that of those four things I listed, eating indoors as a restaurant was the most common. 12% of the epidemiologists surveyed did that. But in a different question, asking what the most risky activities were, that was the riskiest. 
period. So I mean, part of the reason that more people are doing that than, say, sending children on indoor play dates is I'm sure not all of the people surveyed have children. So you can't send children on a play date if you don't have any. And also epidemiologists are generally, I'm, I'm assuming, fairly privileged in their, their work flexibility. So only 7% worked in a shared office because epidemiologists can work from home or many of them have their own offices at universities. Uh, and that, that's, that's the tricky thing is that people with skin in the game or with knowledge and skin in the game, um, they don't necessarily have the same circumstances that, that you or I do or that people in vastly different circumstances do. Um, so it can be tough to translate what decisions they've made to the decisions we should make. And that brings us back to sort of the, the rule-based or, or, or guideline-based system uh, that, that, that gets into the complications that we've been sort of talking around for this whole episode and not really making any, any conclusions about. Um, I mean, do you have any idea how you would, I mean, if you were someone who had to work in a shared office or who didn't have anything else to do with your kids during the, the winter months, like, how would you translate what these epidemiologists are saying with their activities to what you should do? What's the translation there? Well, this is, again, like a something I think of as a safety menu, and you want to to order everything from the top down, but you get to the third one and you're allergic to that. You can't, you can't do that one. So you, you load up on the fourth and the fifth. And, and so, I mean, it's a bad analogy, but the general point is like this, this having a clear idea in people's heads of the relative risk of different activities and the relative value of avoiding them um, would help them to make their own personal trade-offs that they would all have different uh, ways of deciding on each of them if it's something they can reduce, if it's something they can eliminate entirely, and if that's worth it to them. And at least they would know. So yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's not the same as being absolute and saying you have to do all these things, but it's saying, you know, cleaning the surfaces frequently in your home is not going to make it okay to, to go eat out in restaurants every day. That's fair. And one of the difficulties of talking about this stuff is I always, I always try to steer our conversation to what people could do or what governments should do or what health officials should say. And so much of that is, it, it, it varies. I mean, the answer is there, there is no, no clear answer. It's based on people's appetite for risk or, uh, or, or other restrictions or all, all sorts of other things. And these things are really hard to pin down, but just that way of phrasing it is, is also an argument against, absolutism um of of any kind but particularly in terms of of loading up on one particular type of safety at the 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 cost of all the others so um i guess that's your takeaway from from this episode that there are there are all all of these trade-offs and no one of them will uh will protect you from the others or will will make up for avoiding the others Uh, certainly cleaning surfaces all the time will not will not be enough to protect you if you're not wearing a mask or you're you're spending a lot of time with other people indoors and so on so that pretty much takes us through what i had hoped to to cover on this episode carl before we sign off do you have any final thoughts to leave us with it's really comforting for people right now in a time when they're batting battling against something they can't see uh, to to have visual evidence of, of something that, that looks like cleanliness and disinfection and protection. And 
it, it's it's hard to to break that. But um, hopefully the message of no matter what, wash your hands uh, covers covers surfaces for people, and that people are, are still listening to to that one. At least that one also is a is a visible, active thing to do that that has a lot of other benefits as well. And I've also noticed that when I when I am podcasting, I am trying to project my voice. If I were whispering, it would not be as as good. So I'm spreading all kinds of droplets, but. I hope everyone knows from listening that Carl and I are, we're not in the same bubble. We're in fact thousands of miles away from each other. So um, we are not violating any of these tips. If, if anyone comes in this, this office, then it is a member of my own household. And that's the only droplet spreading we're doing around here. And I think I, I speak for both of us when, when I say that. So thank you, Carl. Thank you everyone for listening. Um, if you want to check out our past episodes, uh, there's 12 of them at dangerousexponents.com. Uh, we would appreciate any feedback about what you disagree with, what you liked, what you think we should talk about in future episodes, or any guests you think we should include on the show as well. Um, we'll, we'll try to do more of that in the future. And also, if you're into tennis, you should check out our, our Tennis Abstract podcast, uh, which has a recent episode, a couple of recent episodes, actually, on things pertaining to the pandemic. So, again, thanks, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next time.